Hi, and welcome to the Changes Ahead podcast. Giving space to the often unheard questions, doubts, hopes, and challenges facing the church in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Stephen. And I'm Kathy, and we invite you to join us as we imagine the changes ahead. Stephen, we already know this about me, that I love talking about taboo subjects, and this is one for the church. And what I loved about this conversation is that Joe brought, again, a very well-researched and grounded approach to an uncomfortable topic. And I came away feeling a lot more informed. And so what is it that you hope for in us having these conversations? What I'm hoping this conversation does, at least in part, is helps to reduce the level of shame that people experience because we don't have safe spaces to talk about our experiences, our questions with regards to sexuality, pornography as the topic is. And I know for me that this conversation, had I been able to have it as a a young person, that it could have reduced some of my own experiences of shame. And the other thing I am thinking a lot about is with my two kids who are three and six, this is a conversation that I'm going to be having to have in in the not too distant future. I'm sure it'll be far sooner than I, I hope it is. But this is giving me tools as a parent to help my kids to navigate their way through a space that is totally different to when I was their age. Yes. And in being able to have these kind of brave conversations, it does remove those uncomfortable feelings or help us to at least acknowledge them because we don't want to get stuck there Mm. so that we stay silent. Yeah. One other thing that we want to acknowledge is that the concept of purity culture does come up in the conversation and we recognise that it's a much bigger topic than we had the time and space to unpack it. So we do want to acknowledge the harmful messages that have come from purity culture and still linger in our church spaces. And perhaps it's something that we will cover in another episode in the future. Joe, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to see you again. So happy to be here. We so appreciated your your insights from, yeah, I guess a, a, a few episodes ago, back in episode 15, and talking to us about healthy sexuality and what that looks like and, and how we can have better conversations and improve the, the sex lives and the way we look look at sex and talk about sex in the church spaces. So so really appreciated those insights that you brought. And today we're, we're talking about a couple of more specific things, uh, issues regarding sexuality. And the the first area we're going to start talking about is the issue of pornography and the impacts of that. But before we get into some of the the questions about pornography itself, how did you start thinking about and and looking into pornography in your field? Yeah, it's never what I imagined (laughs) myself doing. I can appreciate that. (laughs) Ever, ever, ever. So to be honest, when I was younger, I felt deeply uncomfortable with Mm. the idea of porn. And it really was quite jarring for me, the idea that people were watching this content. And it was, I remember saying to Dave in like our early years of dating or whatever, I remember saying like, I don't even like, you know, like hearing the word. (laughs) And so I was so uncomfortable. It was one of my kind of unbearable subjects. However, here we are. So what I ended up doing was I, when I was at university, I lived in a hall, like, you know, like a hall of residence or whatever they're called with other 
university students and I just found myself having all these conversations with people about porn because they were out of the home for lots of people it was the first time getting quite a lot of device independence because you know I didn't grow up in like a strong cell phone culture and more era and so they would disclose what they were watching or the fact that this was a habit, something that they were consuming. And I was teaching sex ed at the time. And so people would tell me things about their porn use or whatever, because they, in their mind, attached the two things together. <laughs> and in my mind, they were not together. So it was the first time in my life I'd really been I guess like really confronted with people's experience of it. So it stopped being this abstract thing that mm. existed in society, but became part of someone's journey around their sex life. So I started to become more curious about it. And I decided that curiosity was probably a better, um, more helpful posture than discomfort. <laughs> and so I tried, I tried my best to transition away from discomfort into curiosity. Then when I did my master's in sex therapy, I decided to do my research project on porn. And I did that for a number of reasons, but one of the most significant ones was because there was no informational resources in New Zealand at all. Wow. We had no mm. data. We had no one writing books about it. We had no education. It wasn't in the curriculum. There was zero conversation. And so it seemed like such an obvious gap to myself and my um my colleagues at the time. And so then I did this research project on it so that we would be able to start creating resources. Wow. So my research informed the work. Then what I when I started to do that, I started to talk with more and more couples for whom it was impacting. So I guess in my in my uni years, I was hearing about how it might be shaping people as individuals. And then as my like research went on and as the work went on, I started to hear about more more about how it shapes relationships. Mm -hmm. and, and so that is a lot of my work now is talking with couples about how porn and other behaviors are shaping their, their, their time together, intimate and otherwise. Mm. That seems like quite a big jump in some ways from that sort of posture of curiosity into, I'm going to delve into a master's in, in this area. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Can, how, did, how did that happen? Or, I mean, I guess there's more to the story than you've just shared, but is there, what enabled you to get from that to, you know, from, from one position to the other? Because I guess I guess we all well I, I suppose I speak for myself that that kind of that discomfort there to, to and having the conversation and then delving into the depths of it that seems like a chasm that would be very difficult to jump for me at least. Yeah, I I mean I guess what comes to mind is that I already had two boys. Okay. When I started doing my masters, and so not that only boys consume porn, but it is much more likely, and yeah. so I probably had you know, this extra hat on mm. of how am I going to navigate this as a parent? Yes. And I need to know more about this. And I can't just look on from the sidelines and feel like icky about it. Right. I'm not going to help anyone that way. Yeah. And mm. so the, the the parenting role, the parenting hat really forced me to move forward. So that was a pretty, probably quite a pivotal piece. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I really like that, that it's that you chose to not stay in discomfort and push yourself out because you had that greater picture of how am I going to do this with my boys? 
Because yeah. I think that if we're sitting in our discomfort, boy, our, our, our kids pick it up. They're going to feel a whole extra overlay of what we're feeling. And so we can't even get to what they're at or what they're feeling. So, yeah, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Uh, again, before we continue into the, some more details around this, when we chatted a, a while back, you gave us a really helpful framework. And I, I think if I remember rightly, it was five C's and in, in you said how much mm. you love alliteration. Um, that just <laughs> yeah. that, that kind of helped you to shape or define healthy sexuality. So I think, yeah, ultimately this conversation uh, in our last one, this is about helping all of us journey towards a more healthy sexuality. So could you just remind us of those five C's for, for those who have heard or perhaps those who haven't heard your last episode? Absolutely. And it fits quite perfectly in the porn conversation because what we do in a lot of our resources and in conversations with young people is we're trying to pull apart what is great sex versus what is porn sex. So it's actually helping them think critically about what they're likely consuming. So the five C's are the first is consent. And I think we sh I shared on the last one that that's supposed to be full and enthusiastic. So not a passive recipient, but an active participant in sex. Uh, the next one is care. So feeling safe with the person that you're with emotionally, that for some people isn't in a long-term relationship but that the person that they're with is not going to ridicule their body, be, you know, be kind of judgmental about their performance, that they're not going to share or distribute information about them afterwards, that kind of thing. The next one is comfort. So it's really important that sex is pleasurable for both people. It doesn't have to mean wild orgasms happening constantly, but that it is comfortable, it is pain-free, it is wanted and also pleasurable, that the body is enjoying being in in that moment and and that that's mutual between partners uh the next one is only because it fits in with the c's <laughs> contraception and safety <laughs> so it's really like another term for that but i can't come up with one so that is basically that your body is physically safe there's this thing that we call informed consent which is that you know you know up front kind of like if the other person has STIs or if the other person is going to use a condom or is using contraception. So your body is looked after. That is a kind of a sacred piece of what's going on. And then the last one is communication. So you can talk prior, during and after about the experience, what you do and don't want and how it was for you. Cool. Such a helpful framework, I think. So th thanks for, for reminding us of that. Yeah, that last one, you know, was so helpful that you're to talk about it afterwards and to go, well, what was good and what wasn't the, what what did you call it? The after game? Post game debrief. Yeah. <laughs> that was such a great framework for us. So thank you for, for giving that to us. So where does this take us? Like you, you've all this information that you now have and been exposed to. What are some of the key things that you can highlight that would be helpful for us to to understand? Because it feels like it's a new landscape for us. Yeah, it is a new landscape. That's a that's the term that we often use. So adults are often reflecting when they talk about porn, they're often reflecting on their own experiences, which if you're over 30 is video easy, playboy, like you know, kind of tangible physical porn <laughs> that you can hold, watch, or play. So that's a really different environment to what anyone under 30 has experienced, which is a free-for-all. It's what we call the wild west of the internet, where wow. there is very little to no regulation of content. And what that's meant is that there's been a flourishing of uh, 
I guess what you would call either illegal or or very aggressive, very harmful content. So we can, there's a spectrum of porn. So there's, if you imagine like the bell curve. So down one end, we've got what I would call more passive content, or some people call it more ethical. Performers are paid well, there's more consent, it's more equality and diversity, et cetera, mutual pleasure, that kind of thing. And then you've got down the other end, you've got your criminal behavior, potentially you've got trafficking happening, you've got child content, exploitation. And then the the biggest chunk in the middle is what most people consume. And so there's like the four top sites, for example, and the majority of that content will be aggressive towards women, will be romanticizing violence, um, and it will be fetishizing minority groups. Uh, there won't be a lot lot of consent there won't be a lot of mutual pleasure and the majority if not all people under 30 will have seen that be exposed to it on a regular basis so that's kind of the slightly bleak picture (laughs) and what also is happening is that basically nobody talks about it with anybody under the age of about 25 so there's a, a silence essentially like a complete silence that sits over young people. But when I say young people, I do mean those under 30 because the people over 30 grow up in such a different environment and are largely quite uncomfortable. It was much more taboo for those over 30 to think to like watch porn and you wouldn't share it as much with friends, etc. But for those under that age group, it's not a taboo. It is entirely acceptable, very normal to consume, very normal to share amongst friends. Slightly different, as you can imagine, in faith-based communities. There's often still a real reluctance to talk honestly about that, but it doesn't mean that the majority of the people in the youth group aren't also watching porn. Yeah. Yes, I mean that that silence there. Mm. Yeah, as as we're thinking in in this this wider podcast about changes ahead for the church, we need to break that silence. Is is the is the most obvious statement that I could probably make right now? Can we talk a, a little bit about how how we do that? Because I mean, there is a there is a discomfort. Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I remember you saying in the last one, uh, in our last conversation, was how uh, there's an assumption that information is going to lead to behaviour. Uh, and and that actually that isn't correct uh, is is what you were saying and so I, I wonder if there is some something of that kind of that fear of if we talk about this it's going to just lead to more more consumption which clearly is is not the case from what you're saying but yeah how can we break this kind of silence or or take some steps towards speaking about this more more honestly and openly yeah all great questions i think the first thing is to move past a couple of those myths so that one that obviously i shared last time that talking about something means that someone's going to do it that has not proven to be right across the board hasn't proven to be right when we've talked about cigarettes when we've talked about drugs alcohol sex or porn so that is a um scientifically incorrect you know myth based yeah. in research mm-hmm. um And then the other one is this whole, oh, not my kid or, oh, not my spouse or not my whatever, like they wouldn't do that. So this assumption that the person in your life, whether that's a child, a teen or a partner is immune or that they are some kind of like unicorn type person who won't engage with that or have seen it. I hear this 
all the time from mm. parents or it might be for example in your communities it might be pastors youth pastors etc youth workers who are like oh no not that kid they're awesome mm. and so moving past that is really important and owning the situation like this is the reality this is the data this is the science we know it as fact now and so this belief that it's not happening is not serving anyone mm. In terms of how do we do that, I think the the way that this often happens in strongly kind of morally structured environments, highly values-based environments like a church, is that often it comes in the form of a lecture. <laughs> so wow. people are like, let's talk about it. But they actually don't mean that. They mean, hear my monologue, mm-hmm. as opposed to let's talk, which is a dialogue. Right. So people all the time will say, oh, we talk about this. And I'm like, but did you? Because did you actually ask them any questions or did you just tell them what you think? Mm. Which is a totally different thing. So having a conversation looks like hearing people's experiences, hearing their reflections, what are their thoughts, what were their feelings? You know, people actually experience trauma from watching porn. And so like, let's hear about that. As opposed to let me tell you all the reasons it's bad when you're very likely already in a shame pit about it. Mm. It's just not helping. So transitioning from this monologue from the front of the room to a dialogue that happens within relationship is the only way we also create change for people. Because I was thinking too, you know, when you're talking about that information gap, when we just assume they're going to be okay, we're, we're opening them up for all this potential harm. And yes. because because they don't have all those great five C's, <laughs> they don't know then, they don't have the lens with which to critique and to go, well, that's not consensual and that's yeah. not respectful and that doesn't look safe. Yeah, absolutely. So they may have had, I don't know, two conversations at school about what consent looks like and they've very likely seen porn numerous multiple times and so the educator is what they see the most often what I don't want people to hear from that is that they don't have a voice or that they can't have impact because we know in the family structure at least that children and young people are still predominantly impacted by their parents or caregivers those are the people who have the most influential kind of role in their life so even if they have consumed a lot of content you still have quite a powerful voice but if you're never going to have a conversation about contraception safety consent pleasure if you're just never going to do that then the only place that they're going to learn about it is online and like for example during COVID when there was a real lack of sex education because you know people weren't at school for example the how to like you know how to do a thing in sex searches went up on Pornhub by 244 percent so there are hundreds of thousands of videos dedicated to how to but you're on a platform which is almost entirely kind of preoccupied with violence and aggression against women so that is the information gap gone really wrong Mm. oh absolutely and I think too as a parent one of the things I know I had to really practice hard was not to be shocked so that my because you just said if your kid's already feeling some kind of shame or, or doesn't know what to feel to be able to you know sit with them in that space and uh, so that was a big thing is not to be shocked when they told you what they what they heard or what they saw 
And I remember with one of my children, you know, intermediate, what they told me was being passed around, some very explicit porn. Yeah. I want to pull apart the kind of two roles. I think we're probably, I in the back of my mind, I've got two different kind of relationships that I'm thinking about. So one is this parent-child, parent-teen relationship. And then the other one is the spousal partner-partner mm. relationship where porn is also present and often creating quite a bit of pain so the like don't be shocked don't give a big reaction piece is very very relevant to the parent child parent teen relationship but what i don't want people to hear is that if they hear that their partner is consuming porn that they are not allowed to give a reaction so i want them to feel free to to feel their pain they don't have to silence themselves they don't have to mute their pain in any way because that's really valid it's a totally different relationship so i i get that's kind of on yeah. the back you know, kind of no. trying to pull those two apart that's really helpful and maybe that's something we could talk about because you did say it is impacting our relationships and so can we talk more about what are you noticing what are you hearing and what is that some of that impact on our interpersonal relationship that porn is having yeah, very, very multi-layered. So the most obvious one would be how it's impacting people's sex lives. So we find that with in the research that with monthly viewing, monthly or more, that real life sexual satisfaction starts to decline. So we could, you know, we could easily go, oh yeah, well, that's going to impact real world relationships. It is really hard for a partner to a sexual partner to replicate the online landscape because, you know, you can click through different types of body shapes and different types of content three seconds at a time until you find the thing that you most desire or whatever. And also porn doesn't demand anything of you emotionally. So Mm. you are just the, you know, the, the happy recipient of content as opposed to a real world relationship where something is demanded of you, respect, patience, care, attention, et cetera. So there's the, it's impacting your your sex life and impacting you know what we call your arousal template what you are aroused by what you stop getting aroused by because of what you're watching online but then there's the more emotional impacts people who feel a lot of shame about their porn use tend to withdraw or emotionally disconnect because it is painful for them to emotionally connect when they feel shame about a behavior or they're keeping something a secret so they they can quite quickly become like a wall or a barrier between the partners. And then there's the pain that can be experienced by a partner who hasn't consented to porn being used in the relationship. This is what I call non-consensual porn use, where one partner has has or hasn't said, but is implied, maybe explicitly, maybe not, that porn isn't okay in this relationship, but it's been watched anyway, or that they're not okay with this certain amount of frequency or the genres, et cetera, and that that's watched anyway. So there can be deep, deep pain, like really Mm. raw, intense pain attached to that because watching porn is a sexual activity, right? So it's something that people do with their bodies and they're watching nudity. Like that's not a surprise to any of us. So for the partner who hasn't consented to that, it most often feels like a violation and it feels like cheating for somebody who hasn't consented to it. So it's a big deal in a relationship and therefore you don't need to silence your pain or, you know, make it like, you don't need to be like kind of lovely in response because it's okay that you feel that way and you need to be able to share that. Mm. Mm. It's a very helpful distinction. 
Mm. Yeah. In terms of the research, I mean, how big is this? I mean, how, you know, because it would be easy to think, because I think what you said earlier, oh, this isn't happening to us or, you know, you know, but how across the board in terms of society, what do you know in terms of porn consumption? We don't have adult data. Mm. Mm. So the majority of porn research has been focused on youth and on children, and there hasn't been, uh, I guess, like a funder, because research is funded, so a funder appetite or a public appetite to know what the habits of adults are. So we don't know. What we do know is that the majority of teens access porn. So at the moment, the figures stand at about 75% of boys and 58% of girls. I've never, ever been in a youth environment. I've run so many focus groups where they have said that's accurate. And about 8% (laughs) 8 of respondents chose not to engage with those questions. So we could probably knock them up to about 82% and about 65%. So we can assume. And that was also about four years ago. So that's not really very accurate anymore. Research that gets to close to the five-year mark, we stop wanting to use. The average age now has dropped from 14 to 12 of first exposure. And obviously the content is still just as problematic, if not more. So we know that this is really widespread. Uh, The majority of the time it's by accident um, or it's shown from like one friend to another or it's been airdropped or it's been Mm -hmm. on another platform like on Instagram or YouTube or something like that. For example, the majority of the time, this study just came out in 2023, in the UK, they interviewed teenagers and the main place that they saw porn was on Twitter. So <laughs> what that says to us is that it's really embedded into lots of different platforms, which we already knew, but we didn't know that that is where young people were engaging with it. So, you know, a lot of adults are also on Twitter. So we can know that they're also seeing a lot of content. Mm. Mm. As the rise of streaming services, yeah, that 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 we've got, uh, and just kind of even you could say the the quality of of TV, yeah, has kind of more matched cinema, right? Like the, in in the way that kind of production values and all that sort of thing. That that also has seems like there has been a, a normalization on on in TV shows of yeah. more explicit sexual content. Is that considered pornography if it's just on yeah on on a TV show or is it only in these particular yeah websites that you go to that yeah is is there a distinction that people draw there is is there a difference? Yeah, so I tend to use a a framework which is about intent and use. Okay. So a TV show's primary intent is to entertain. Their secondary intent might be to arouse. Okay. But because that's their secondary intent, we don't call it porn. However, people use content as their porn. So I, for example, would have clients who aren't on porn websites. However, they might be on Instagram and be watching the same reel, like a like a one-minute video of provocative content over and over again, and they use that as their porn. So it's these two different functions. What is the production's intent and what is the user's, I guess, goal? Right. As porn has become more normalized in society, uh, is that fair to say that it has become more normalized? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Are we being desensitized to 
to this kind of content as it has become more normalized, even in marketing or that sort of thing in the way that that bodies are objectified so so often yeah, all around us. I think so. Yeah, we, we see this, what I call dyadic relationship between mainstream media and the porn industry, where they are quite woven together. So what mainstream media is doing Obviously, the porn industry has to knock up a bit to be more novel. However, what the porn industry is doing, mainstream media, you know, wants to be interesting and provocative and on the edge. So they're also doing a little bit of a match. So I call it like a staircase where they're kind of knocking each other up all the time. Um, that sounds like pregnancy, yeah. not intended. But, you know, they're, they're, they are, they're pushing each other upwards. Uh, so I do think there's an overall desensitization that occurs. Yeah. Where do you see it taking us? And and because we haven't been having these conversations, we don't even know where we're where where we're going. But because you have, what do you see? And what is it that you're really concerned about in terms of going forward if we don't have more of these conversations? I think we're not going anywhere fast. So Australia, for example, is about 25 years into this journey around sexual content, and they are now much more ahead of us in terms of regulation, but also pressure that they put on internet providers, et cetera, how they manage filtering. You know, they are ahead, and they've been 25 years in the making. We are six years in the making. So we didn't start having this conversation at a national level until 2017. So we're very much on the back foot. Hopefully we catch up quickly. However, we also in New Zealand are very afraid of doing things first, it seems to me. So we tend to look on in terms of like the difference between, for example, we'd like to do things first, like give women the vote. (laughs) So those are like progressive things. But Filtering online content is seen as a, a a form of censorship. So it's seen as kind of a conservative move, if that makes sense. So we don't want to do that first because it doesn't look as good. I don't think on, from like a political perspective. And so there's a lot of watching on to see what the bigger countries are going to do. And then we can follow suit if it's effective. I find that obviously deeply frustrating because we could be world leaders in this space but choose not to be so we're just moving very slowly my concern with that is that we're we're going to continue to see the effects of this and the impact of the content on younger generations for the next potentially 20 years you know Mm -hmm. it's like a long process as you get in my six years of doing this work there's been another whole generation of teenagers gone through high school they've gone through from year nine to year 13 and literally nothing has changed for them so that is quite depressing however I've also seen a lot of really positive both intent and action in some places so you get pockets of really positive change we are also hearing from that kind of early 20s age group that they're really concerned about the content they're seeing and from an ethics perspective are choosing not to engage so that's hopeful so we see these pockets of hope and and that's what i would like to build on but it's a slow burn Mm. 
So I wonder, yeah, as as we've acknowledged in, um, I think, earlier in this conversation, but certainly in our last one, yeah, this this podcast is speaking into a, a faith-based context. In the back of my mind, as we're talking, there's this thing that is referred to as purity culture within church, where I guess there's this expectation of sexual purity for, for everyone, however that's defined. And yet the porn consumption is, is it's, I think, most people within the church space would know that it's an issue within church people as well. So there's this there's this narrative of purity on, on the one side, and then perhaps there's this consumption of something that doesn't match up with that value. Can we talk a little bit about, about purity culture and, and the impact and perhaps the way that these two topics speak into each other or form each other? How would you define purity culture for, to, to start mm-hmm. with? Yeah, I've actually started doing a bit of research into this in, in kind of quite you know, reading online, hearing people's experiences of it, what was what was actually going on in that time? Because it's it's quite a defined period of time. So it's a cultural phenomenon. It was through the 90s and really the early 2000s. And it was in response, this this cultural movement was in response to a lot of wider societal things that were happening. So there was MTV. For example, there was the literally the beginning of reality television <laughs> that was not a thing before that time. And then we were seeing the an increase in sex education, but also in the contraceptive pill being freely available now to teenagers. So there was this response to that, which came out of a place of fear around what was happening to youth culture. And I think concern for the welfare of young people like I don't think anybody sits around and is like how can we destroy teenagers (laughs) like I don't think that occurs so my personal belief and and maybe this is wrong is that most people are trying to do the right thing when they do stuff not everyone but most people so I think there was like a there was a thing happening in faith-based communities where they were like this is concerning because we think this isn't good for our teenagers. So let's do something about that for their welfare. I don't think they realized what was going to happen as a fallout. If they did, they probably wouldn't have done it. Basically, purity culture is defined as, like you said, maintaining purity, which is abstinence until marriage. And then, so just don't have sex. It was strongly pushed to not really even date or kiss or do any kind of intimate behaviors until marriage. So kind of going back to more of a courting medieval situation. (laughs) There was a strong emphasis on female purity. Mm. So it's a very gendered movement. Very interesting in that way. So women's bodies were quite policed in terms of how they looked, what they wore, what they did in terms of their behavior. They were kind of in charge of this abstinence purity thing. And that if that didn't happen in relationships, that they were largely in the wrong. Because the other gendered message that was given was that men can't control themselves. So boys have no control over their own urges, impulses, and bodies. Therefore, girls and women need to do the work for them. Mm. That was a really clear and strong message. So you do have a generation of both of those genders 
having had some very explicit messaging around what their role is, who they should be, how they should present physically and emotionally, all the things sexually. So it was very, very gendered. But also this, I think we talked about it last time, one of the other layers seemed to be this transactional relationship with God. Like I think we talked about that, that the way that you perform means that God, the divine, whoever will reward you or punish you. So there were a few really critical things happening within this cultural phenomenon. Some people are still in that. Yes. So Mm -hmm. some communities continue with that messaging. Uh, However, a number have departed from it, which is probably helpful. So it's still existing, but not at such large, large scale. It's interesting as well that the, the whole the responsibility that is put on women for mm. for other for for men's behavior, thoughts, all that sort of thing, that's a completely unjust, yeah, and unfair burden to be placing on on people. That, but I also that's not just a church thing, right? Like there's there's I think yeah. within society there's mm. still the you know if if you hear the the terrible stories of assault, there's an assumption or there's a a, a first question often. Is, or what were they wearing, or yeah, or mm-hmm. how much had they had to drink? All those sorts of things that actually plays into this narrative of of women's responsibility for the behaviour of others, of of and particularly men in this case. Yeah, absolutely. So and so pulling on that, one of the most pronounced critiques of purity culture is that it was victim blaming and shaming. Mm. And so survivors of sexual assault or people who went on to experience sexual assault, girls and women, largely blamed themselves because of the purity culture messaging that was compounded upon within culture. But it is more problematic when it's coming from people you deeply respect and you are told to aspire to become. I was just thinking, I'm not sure if I've got this formed, but just this idea that men can't control themselves seems like a really powerful message because I was even thinking about one of the questions being put to me what happens if halfway through you thought you wanted sex and then you want to stop yes well then you should yeah (laughs) yes you should but but if we have this myth then that men can't control themselves or you know then that sort of tells us well we've got to keep going do you know what I mean we've got those conflicting yeah, yes. how do how do we address yeah. that? Yeah, so there's this I, I don't know, you know, how helpful people find these things, but it's good as a parent and as a, you know, whoever you are as an authority in a young person's life, but there's this thing called Fry's consent. <laughs> so it's that it is it needs to happen frequently. It is reversible. It is informed. It is enthusiastic and it's specific. Hmm. Wow. So consent is much more complex than just yes at the beginning. And I and I think as adults, lots of us know that, but we don't often share kind of the nuances of it uh, with other people. But I I mean, I would hope that in any community or group where sex is being talked about or porn is being talked about, that the nuances of consent are explained. Could you just say the fly again? Yes, could you? Because I've never heard that before. (laughs) And that is so helpful because I actually think we could get stuck in the, well, I started off thinking I wanted it and now I'm misleading you. 
absolutely do, do you know yeah. what I mean? you, you get these yeah. narratives in your head and so i've got to keep going so yeah please repeat that <laughs> yeah so frequent so it needs you need to be able to say yes you know throughout and then reversible you can stop at any time it's informed you know what you are getting into you know some of that safety stuff that I talked about at the beginning enthusiastic so you're not passive but a participant and then specific so you are consenting to two acts not a whole experience yes yes that's really powerful as we continue to try and unpack this this topic uh, as in church spaces uh, I guess this is what we're hoping to do with with these episodes you did a TED talk a few years ago that is is really well worth watching for our listeners. If yes, I searched Joe Robertson TED talk. You finish with kind of the the ultimate message of of your TED talk, and and basically that was we must talk to our teenagers about porn. And within the talk, you kind of give some some ideas about the how. I wonder if perhaps as as we're coming to the end of our time, we I, I think this would be. Yeah, in, in light of the reflections on purity culture and obviously the conversation about pornography, how do we uh, have those this conversation? Yeah, we say we must talk about it, and which makes perfect sense. Let's let's finish sort of really practically around with some some of the the how and I think the heart head hands kind of framework that that yeah. you, you talk about in that TED talk um, would be a great place for us to to start this part of the reflection. Oh, so how do you have the chat? My first kind of beginning piece is just take a deep breath. Yep. You know, like it's all going to be all right, mm. right. <laughs> and yeah. it's going to be okay. You yeah. might, you know, fumble your way through a conversation. You might make a mistake. You're not going to nail it. It's not going to be perfect. It might be awkward. It just totally doesn't matter. You can always go back for round two. And it's interesting how we tell our kids and young people it's okay to make mistakes, but we don't take that advice ourselves. Mm. I find people do what I call perfection paralysis, which is like they don't do anything anything until they think they're going to get it perfect and that moment will never come mm. it doesn't come for me even and I'm technically an expert you know I still will mess it up every once in a while not often but you know <laughs> <laughs> so take a deep breath you know now is better than never uh, this time do some learning so have a few kind of nuggets in the back of your head of of what you want to say what are your key messages why do you care about this what are your values around sex around porn around relationships gender whatever it is like just have a couple of things they're what I call seeds because we're not giving a lecture you know like I said before we're just like one sentence at a time this is a you know a frequent and often conversation it is way more awkward to have one big chat than wow. it being immersed as part of your family culture now if you're if you've got a 16 year old in your home and you've never talked about any of this stuff then yes you're probably going to start with one big chat but what's helpful after that point is you weave in all the time Mm -hmm. so it doesn't like become this one big thing like <laughs> moment that you anticipate and then feel nervous about but just throwing sentences in every once in a while about something you heard something you read asking a question and then when you for example find out that they've seen something which is going to be the majority experience or you think they may have come across something, then you do what I call heart, head and hands. So you always respond with 
feelings and questions. You know, for example, if my nine-year-old came and told me that he saw porn and he's seen a bunch of stuff like drawn in playgrounds, but as yet not on a TV screen or on a phone, but he came to me and he saw heaps of stuff on very explicit things on a playground uh, once. And I kind of, you know, the default is to come in with my thoughts about that. But the first thing to do is ask them, how did that feel? What's going on for them? What did they wonder? What did what were they curious about? And get their experience first, you know, dialogue, not monologue. And then you go to head. And that's unpacking the messages. So for example, he saw something that had a bunch of swear words in it or something. And I asked him in our kind of heart section, you know, what did you think about that? And he's like, oh, I thought it was a bit dumb. You know, they often often give very simplistic responses. And I said, why do you think someone would do that? And then he said, I think they're trying to be cool. So he's already got the answer. Like, I don't need to provide that for him. He already knows. But if I come in with a lecture, then I'm not hearing and pulling out from him his own thoughts. So here is your unpacking. You might be doing your five C's at that point. You know, what are some key messages about sex? How do we do really healthy sex, healthy relationships? You know, it's really important. People are treated equally. People aren't hurt during sex. And that's what we often see in content. Then the last one is hands, which is like, let's get a little bit practical. Do you want to put filters on? Do you want to create some kind of device contracts? Do you want to all put your devices in the lounge at night? What do they want to help kind of manage this in their life, protect them? And then what do you want as well to protect them based on how old they are? So again, people tend to jump to the practical stuff pretty quickly. Like if they found out their teenager was watching porn, I'm taking your phone away. Mm -hmm. Probably not that helpful. (laughs) You know, maybe you want it to be part of an overall strategy, but it's not actually serving them in any way. And it's better to kind of collaborate with them on how to be safe online than just be punitive in response. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a, you know, a framework in a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great framework because I, I like what you're doing. You're equipping them so that they can critique yeah, and giving them the tools to be able to discern. And that's what we want. Yeah. Just an example this morning. So one of my kids is at home sick and obviously they're younger, but this is the stuff I'm trying to coach them to do very early. So homesick, he's watching TV and I can hear that the TV show is like probably slightly above his age group. I jump on Common Sense Media, most like amazing website ever for reviewing content. Every parent in the world should check Common Sense Media before they're <laughs> letting their kids do anything. But anyway, I can see all the different types of content that it's going to have in it. I, I say to him, hey, I think this is going to have like, you know, some kissing, some relationships. So I start to tell him ahead of time. I say to him, I think this is probably a little bit too old for you. And he's like, oh, but I want to watch it. And I say, okay, well, your homework then after this is to tell me afterwards what you thought about it, what you thought was great and what you thought was wasn't great. Mm. So if I'm going to let you watch it, I need to know that you're thinking about it. And he loves it. He's like, that's great. He's so into that Mm. because he's got some autonomy. He's treated with respect. And then he also, we get to have a chat afterwards and he loves a chat. So that kind of works. But, you know, it'd be easy for me to just turn the TV off and be like, no, too old for you, not happening. Yes. 
it's it could be such a great prompt for conversation. Yes, and and you're also, I think, setting up so that he'll come back to you. Maybe something else he's seen because you've already created this this habit of reflecting. Yeah. And he might go, well, I, I went and saw this. Oh, and I had this thought, mum. What da 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 da. So you you're 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 setting that practice up for the future, aren't you? That's the plan. Yeah. Oh. yeah we had a very in-depth conversation after that about racism because something that he observed that was happening in the show that he didn't like was a comment made about ethnicity and the way people look. And so he critiqued that, came to me, you know, afterwards, because we're having our chat, tells me about it, says what he thinks is wrong with it. And then we get a chance to talk. Well, it just means we have to pay, as I was thinking, it requires more of us that we have to pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> Although I didn't have to do a lot of work there. No. You know, I, I, it's not super laborsome on my part. Well, in terms of that, you could have just turned it off. I but could have just turned yes, it off. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. So yeah. we are actually using that as an opportunity to to learn and, and to talk together. I like that. Yeah. And you had a great phrase that I picked up on another talk where you talked about, and I think this is what you're saying, they're micro moments too, aren't they? You're just building them in so that we take this pressure off what you said earlier of thinking we have to have these perfect, big, huge conversations. Absolutely. You know, I think the the whole birds and the bees chat is very archaic and, and it doesn't, it just doesn't actually work because they forget, they actually just forget what you've said. <laughs> and so I've, I've had these conversations, big chat with my seven-year-old about sex, all the details, three months later, like we talk about it, you know, frequently, but three months later, I just thought, oh, I'm going to check in with him and see if he had any new questions. Literally couldn't remember anything I'd said. Well, wow. Like yep. gone from his mind. <laughs> I'm like, if I had a left that at this one chat, <laughs> that would be a real problem. <laughs> so yeah. That's the weaving in, the micro moments, the small conversations. Those are the ones that that overall build up knowledge. Yeah, and they're landing, aren't they, because they're having to think for themselves. Yeah, That's what will, will get seeded, yeah. Mm. As we're finishing, one final question or invitation, I suppose. Yeah, you, you, you left us with some insights as far as how – church leaders, faith-based leaders could potentially be addressing this better in their context. Yeah, I guess because not 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 all all families will have the same kind of opportunity or at least culture that you have very intentionally been been building. Is there is it advice or is it kind of um, recommendation that you could give to to those of us who are trying to to shape church culture into a more healthy space with regards to sexuality. What would you suggest from your expertise uh, into that space as we finish our time together? Yeah. Given that I work with adults a lot of the time, and I've spent a lot of time working with youth, but predominantly now I work with adults and adults from every kind of part of society, largely, I would say that it's going to be really difficult to talk about this if you don't have a handle of on it in your own life. Right. So again, the assumption that some people are unicorns and aren't going to struggle with this 
we assume that like a church leader or somebody in authority, somebody in a position we respect is not going to be navigating porn or sexual issues in their relationships, but that is not the case. And in fact, they are more likely to be vulnerable because of the stress that they experience, potentially the anxiety that they experience because of their role. So we know that negative emotions are often managed by self-soothing, which is for lots of people, porn. So dealing with it in whatever way you want to in your own life and getting, I guess, some support or help if that's what's needed is a really important step. That's my first thought. And then my second thought is that the way to really shift culture is to work at every level. So often people go, oh, we'll do a youth talk. And I'm like, cool. But that can't be it. And because this is now so pervasive in the community, the impacts of porn or people engaging with it, that you also should do talks with your elders or your pastoral leaders. You should also be doing parent and caregiver nights. You know, this is what we call a holistic view, which is not just that the 13 and 14 year olds over there <laughs> have got some issues and they're like, you know, deficit. But actually, let's all be prepared. Let's all think critically. Let's all kind of get a handle on our relationships and our sexuality. And that actually changes culture. Mm. So it is more in, kind of intense or you do have to be more intentional. But if you're thinking 20 years in the making, how can we shift culture? Then you need to do that in all the different parts of your community, not just with the teens, because they're the ones you think <laughs> are all watching porn yeah. that's really helpful we're just gonna have to be brave aren't we and start having these conversations i just wanted to thank you for what you've brought again today i've just learned a whole pile of new things and i'm going to take those away and digest them thank you for the wisdom and i imagine it hasn't been easy sitting in this space doing this kind of work but because you have, you have been able to bring these ideas to us and help us to navigate. So I just want to really thank you. You're welcome. It's good, interesting work. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Changes Ahead podcast. If that resonated with you, or you've got thoughts about the Changes Ahead for the church, we'd love to hear from you. So get in touch on Instagram or Facebook at Changes Ahead Cast. Or email us at the Changes Ahead Podcast at gmail.com. See you next time. <laughs>